Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network makes us happy? What keeps us from being happy? Is restlessness the same as unhappiness? Is happiness something we should value or assume we can even find? These are some of the questions that Benjamin and Jenna Story explore in their 2021 book, Why We Are Restless, on the Modern Quest for Contentment. They they lead us through the ideas on these matters of four French language thinkers, Montaigne, Pascal, Rousseau, and Tocqueville. The book begins by examining the relaxed view of the human condition that Montaigne, 1533 to 1592, took that has been called his nonchalance, and moves on to the stern forbidding view of Blaise Pascal, 1623 to 1662, who felt that everyone was miserable and it was folly to deny it and the only answer was God, and finding God was a grueling quest. They then take on Jean-Jacques Rousseau, 1712 to 1778, who felt that everyone was good at heart, but the society tended to stifle that goodness and deform moral character. They conclude with Alexis de Tocqueville, 1805 to 1859, who felt that democracy was a boon to mankind, but that it could descend into tyranny if people became so obsessed with material well-being that they turned to the government at the expense of liberty. This is only one take on the book. Read it for yourself. It profiles four thinkers who shaped Western thinking on government, religion, education, liberty, morality, and our consciousnesses and the soul. It could be profitably read by teachers, parents, and those who have friends who are unhappy or by readers who are themselves vaguely or wildly discontented. If you are a happy-go-lucky person, Montaigne is your man. If you are of the opinion that life is a grim business, go with Pascal. If you want a book that is both enjoyable and deeply serious, read this one. For months, for once, I was convinced that French and Swiss thinkers matter to me as an American. Today, we will hear from Benjamin and Jenna Story and talk about their four featured thinkers and the long, winding path of the concept of contentment. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Ben and Jenna Story about their 2021 book, Why We Are Restless, on the Modern Quest for Contentment. Thank you for joining us today, Ben and Jenna. Thanks, Hope, for having us on. Very yeah, excited. thanks very much. We're, we're happy to be here. I'm, I'm excited because your book is getting a lot of buzz, and I, I very much enjoyed it. I'd like to start with some matters of terminology. Let's start with the word modern. At what point in history would you start applying the word modern? Was Montaigne, born in 1533, a modern man? If so, in what sense? And was he, in a way, the first modern man? Okay, that's a very interesting question because the word modern is a funny word. Um, literally, it just means now or of the moment, right? So technically, you could apply the word modern at every minute, um, but that's not how we tend to use it. We tend to use the word modern to describe a certain epoch or, or period of time, right? And another interesting thing about that word as, as used to describe an epoch of time is that it's used differently in different fields, Right. So what counts as modern in, say, art history is not the same as what counts as modern in music or in political philosophy. Modern modernity sort of hits those ways of thinking or looking at things differently at different times. Um, So what we've thought about this term 
obviously a lot. And <laughs> what um, we think characterizes the term modern, even across the fields, what you could say characterizes it across the fields, is um, a sense that what one is doing now constitutes an explicit break with the past. So a kind of modern means we're making a self-conscious break with the past, mm. right? And we're going to do that differently again in art or political philosophy at different times and in different ways. Um, so we make the case in this book that Montaigne is an exemplary modern figure. Mm. He's someone that you might say inaugurates or crystallizes the modern understanding of what it means to live well, right? Mm. So you might say he's a uh, modern in terms of, of morals understood in that broad sense of what it means to live and live well. And what would characterize his view as particularly modern is a break with um, the pre-modern ways of looking at how to live well as a kind of um, a, a difficult endeavor, right? So you might try to be something very, um, very challenging, like to be a, a saint, right? Mm. To organize your life so that you're, you're just, des you're, you're deserving of, of, of grace that would merit um, an eternal reward. Or perhaps you might look at that in a, in a Roman way, for example, and try to be a kind of civic hero, political leader of that would be remembered for, you know, centuries or millennia. So those are very challenging kind of endeavors. And they were they were among the, the repertoire of pre-modern answers of how one lives uh, well. Um, Montaigne had a kind of, uh, you know, he, he broke explicitly with those kinds of answers by saying, you live well just by living, mm. right? Being a human being and living as uh, an ordinary human day to day is what it's all about. Um, he's uh, one of the first people to articulate beautifully what Charles Taylor has more recently described as the affirmation of ordinary existence. Mm. So that is why we call Montaigne um, an exemplary modern figure. Well, another okay. way to. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ben. Yeah, sure. Just a just another uh, a footnote to on um, on on what Jenna's saying there is that. Montaigne has been described by um, by the French thinker, the, the living French thinker Pierre Manon, as uh, a person who pres who offers a teaching about the good life that is intended to speak to those who care neither for the salvation of their cities nor for the salvation of their souls. And so this is a this is a, a presentation of the good life that is neither intensely religious nor intensely political, but focused on uh, a modest kind of private contentment that we can enjoy here and now. And we think this, you know, the audience that Montaigne found for this was not, you know, it, it, if it's a niche audience, it's a big niche. The uh, that's what um. That's what I, I think. This is something that 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 helps uh, characterize the modern world, right? Is that it's it's a world that gives a great deal of satisfaction to those kinds of people who are sometimes uh, called um, uh, sometimes come to be called the bourgeois. And uh, Montaigne is in some ways the first bourgeois thinker insofar as he appeals to this this set. Well, you you meant you what you just mentioned, you said when the, the audience that he found in the book, you also say that Montaigne was interesting and that he created his audience. Could you discuss that? And how was he the first person to do that? Uh, I don't know that I'd say that he was a, he was the first person to do this, but what he does there is really very distinctive. Montaigne is a is deeply steeped in the tradition of classical Greek and Roman philosophy, poetry, 
history and theology, although he underplays the latter the, um, to, a, to a significant degree. In fact, Montaigne's own first language was Latin. His father mm. had him raised by a Latin tutor with everybody around him speaking Latin for about the first five years of his life is the way that he tells us the story. But interestingly, when he went to write his book, he decided to write it in French, which was for him a very self-conscious choice. He very easily could have written uh, his works in Latin, but he chose not to do that. And by making that choice and by a number of the other editorial choices of the essays, Montaigne is calling a new audience into being, one could say. That is, I think we oftentimes think of writers writing for an audience that is a sort of pre-existing and static thing. Montaigne is trying to convert non-readers into readers. And so, for example, he does things not, not so he does, he writes about philosophy in French, which is a significant innovation and helps bring philosophy to people who only read French. He dedicates a number of the chapters of the essays to women the, uh, and thereby helps bring them into this circle of, of, of philosophic conversation. So in this sense, Montaigne is seeking to, to put a book of philosophy into the hands of people who might not think of themselves as, uh, as, as readers of philosophy prior to encountering somebody like Montaigne. And one could say similar things about Pascal and, and, and Rousseau later on in this tradition. Oh, Jenna, has, Jenna you had a point. <laughs> yes, I was just um, inspired by what my husband was saying about the way that Montaigne uh, created an audience or elicited an audience um, from the people that he discerned around him. And I was just thinking, what, how do you write a book that's ahead of its time? Right. There's some there are some authors, um, all of those whom we treat and some others who are able to write a book that lasts for a long time, in part because they kind of catch the wave of their moment. Right. And I think Montaigne was really good at doing that. Um, in a sense, he created his audience, but in a sense, he discerned the potential for an audience that wasn't that was kind of um, implicit in the people around him. So like my husband said, people who weren't versed in classical languages, but could read French and want, started to want to think, women who were not always addressed in these books. But also um, he looked probably at the, arist the aristocratic classes around him and foresaw that they were probably going to be changing their way of life, which in fact they did, um, from being focused on their feudal holdings and on being sort of feudal lords organizing their own private armies and and um, sort of in charge of their own estates as their primary occupation to aristocrats who were more focused on the the French court you know ultimately mm. um, so they were going to move from being feudal lords to courtiers right and his book is very well timed to not only help them make that transi transition but help them see that transition as something um, exciting and even ennobling well, I was going to ask about the, the issue of, of the, the writing, writing in the French language. First of all, was he consciously saying, I am going to try to reach that court that Jenna was talking about, and I, I'm going to uh, uh, eschew the need to write to reach a broader Latin reading audience, or was he, or was French, or were, or were wealthy people throughout Europe able to read French? So was he, was he actually being, actually broadening his audience by writing in the French language? He was certainly broadening his audience in France by writing in the French mm -hmm. language. And, you know, there's this, there's this interesting thing that happens over the course of these early modern centuries that has been described by uh, one of my teachers, a man named uh, Marc Fumaroli, who, who died recently. But he wrote a book um, called When Europe Spoke French. Mm -hmm. 
And what he's, uh, what he's describing there is the moment in European history in which French occupied the place that English occupies now and that Latin uh, occupied before the modern period, which is as the international lingua franca. And Montaigne's uh, effort to, to, to help create a French philosophic literature helped build this French philosophic canon that got the attention of people all over Europe the, um, and got them interested in learning to read French and, um, and participating in the, in, in the French conversation. You could see something similar going on in the writings of Pascal. And here I want to pick up on, on something Jenna was saying a moment ago about how an author can, can anticipate what might be popular but isn't popular yet. Mm. Pascal does this really interesting thing is that he's writing about a theological controversy going on at the Sorbonne. It's obviously a controversy taking place in Latin between the Jansenists and the Jesuits. And in his provincial letters, what Pascal does is he makes fun of the Jesuits. He mocks them. He satirizes them. And what Pascal guessed was that, you know what? A lot of people might like to see the Jesuits satirized. <laughs> the, the, there might be a big audience for this. And in fact, that was the case. People started, um, country priests started reading the provincial letters from their pulpits. Uh, and this is something that one might not have guessed uh, would happen, but Pascal could see it coming. And that's, uh, and that's what he did. And so there again, you see somebody taking something that is thought of a kind of as a learned, specialized kind of argument or dialogue and making it available to a much broader reading public. Well, it's interesting, too. I was just going to say that what Pascal was doing was was very dangerous in those letters. Right. Whereas whereas what Montaigne was doing was was not necessary, was novel, but not revolutionary or was it revolutionary? I guess it was revolutionary, but not in a, a political sense. Correct? Or but, well, yeah, yeah I, I think that's I think that's that's interesting, Hope, because I think the um, um, Montaigne is somebody who is effectively defending the French monarchy. Uh, in his writing, although he is uh, he is on this in the in the quarrels of his times, there are ultra Catholics on the one side, and there are revolutionary Protestants on the other side, and he's not with either of them. He's more in uh, in favor of conserving the French monarchic and aristocratic order as it exists, despite the fact that he doesn't actually have any real brief for aristocracy for monarchy. He doesn't necessarily think very highly of the French kings of his own time. In fact, he. He clearly doesn't think very highly of the um, of the character of these people. Nonetheless, Montaigne lives through revolution and civil war, and he's not he's not interested in stirring up those kinds of passions because he because he sees lots of people dying all around him <laughs> because of these uh, these these conflicts. And so, in this sense, Montaigne is actually a more conservative figure than Pascal, who is interested in a very kind of uh, uh, demanding, austere, even revolutionary kind of Christianity. And Jenna, you, you wanted to comment on? Yes, I just wanted to um, comment on your um, on your question about whether Montaigne was um, was doing something new and revolutionary, and what my husband was saying. So Montaigne was, as my husband was saying, kind of conservative, or well, in a certain way, he was he was revolutionizing the way we understand how to live, right? As we've that's that's the core of what we're trying to say in the book. At the same time, I think socially and politically, he was conservative in a in a certain way, particularly politically. But the point I wanted to make is that in a time like the one in which he lived, in which politics was polarized, um, agitated, more than agitated, bloody, um, it is a very hard thing to be moderate, 
right? So actually taking a kind of middle way or carving out a middle path as Montaigne did, trying not to join one or the other sides of this uh, civil war was actually something that required a lot of skill and daring. Yeah, you make the point in the book that he that he was literally under the gun often in his own life. He was taken hostage, you make the point, and he was, there were armed, armed marauders in his courtyard of his, of his otherwise pacific life and so forth. And that's quite, quite startling. And also you make, you, you, wonderful thing about the book is that you really convey the drama of what, of what Pascal was living through a hundred years later and what, what Montaigne was living through. I, I'd like to ask what we got off on, on we were discussing the yeah, concept of modern and another, getting back to the title of your book, you talk about the word restlessness or, or yeah, um, restlessness. Um, and could you discuss what you mean by the term restlessness? In the, in the book, you use it quite broadly, meaning, for example, the restlessness within the soul, which Pascal deals with, and then actual literal restlessness in, in Tocqueville, where people want to get up and move to the frontier, they want to make money, they, they're restless with their lot in life. What, what do you mean by restlessness? Okay, um, that's, that's a great question. So with that term, which is in the title of our book, we're trying to capture a phenomenon that we were, and we do see all around us. And that particular kind of restlessness is um, what we first characterized as we were trying to put our hands on it as a kind of frenetic paralysis. Right. So that's kind of a paradox. There's a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. And so that's in part, we're trying to capture something that, um, that we do ex try to lay out a little bit more in the book what we're what we're what we're thinking behind this term restlessness, but it's um, it's it's like when you're you've run around all day doing all sorts of things, and then you get to the end of the day and you think I've done nothing, right? That's the most like way that I can find to talk about it to connect to most people's experiences. Most of us have had that experience of being kind of frantic all day. And then getting to the end of it and feeling like we've accomplished nothing and we're not really paralyzed. We're not really sure where to go next. Right. Um, so it's like a lot of activity without action or motion without uh, a sort of long term purpose. So that's what we're trying to capture in this book, this uh, kind of whirling around in our in our own um, in our own um, activities that, that that don't seem to be going anywhere. I would. Um, contrast that with another, maybe the Pascalian sort of restlessness, or at least the restlessness that Pascal would think is a beneficial or productive kind of restlessness, um, which would be a kind of Augustinian restlessness. So a lot of times when we talk about our book, people will bring up a very famous quotation from um, Augustine, which is, my heart is restless, O God, until it rests in thee, mm. right? So that I'm on a kind of what Pascal would, would call a, a quest to figure out what would actually satisfy these inexplicably deep longings of my heart. And I don't find any kind of rest until I've found something of um, that answer. And then the rest is actually not a kind of, well, let me go lie on the couch and you know, eat ice cream rest, which it's another kind of misconception people have about what we're saying. Um, but the kind of rest that Pascal and Augustine are looking for is more the kind of rest of a, of a quest that keeps deepening and going somewhere, right? That you find the object of your desires, but you, but you don't, um, you, because it's something that is an, as infinite, um, as as God, you don't just stop and rest and, and, you know, stop the quest and rest there. You're engaged in something, though, that is a, a productive, ever-deepening activity. 
Well, I wanted to I wanted to quote from the book since we discussed the word modern and we now we've discussed the word restlessness and you referred to Pascal and in the book and I'll quote you say in Pascal the restlessness that is truly modern the restlessness of the soul that tries and fails to hold itself within the confines of imminence finds its first most powerful voice and I wondered this might be the time to discuss the, the matter that another word <laughs> we've discussed restlessness and modernism now imminence. And what, yeah. oh, Ben, you want to go with that? And sure. So, you know, what we've so the the yeah, hope you're right to 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 see this term imminent contentment as an important term that lays out the kind of spine of the book or the or the that holds the argument together across these four thinkers. And that's and, your term. That's your term, correct? That your coinage imminent. Yes, contentment. that's yes. This is something that we came up with to 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 indicate what the, the general theme that we're trying to address. And what we mean by imminent contentment is on the one hand, making ourselves happy here and now. And on the other hand, a very specific way of doing that, which is uh, a way of seeking happiness that is exemplified uh, in the first place by Montaigne. And so, as we've talked about, Montaigne lived in the midst of religious civil war he thought people were way too wound up about the question of the highest good, the question of the summum bonum. He saw his neighbors roasting each other alive over their different answers to these questions, and he thought that we should uh, tamp things down a little bit. And so Montaigne's way of doing this is by saying that we can just give up on the question of the summum bonum. We don't have to answer that question. There is no highest good. There is no pearl of great price. There is no one thing needful that makes a human life worth living. You can find happiness by just kind of dabbling your way to it, by just sort of enjoying everyday stuff, taking a horseback ride, uh, uh, pottering around in the garden, um, having ordinary conversation with your friends and your family, uh, doing a little reading, but not too seriously. Um, this is the sort of Montaignan recipe for happiness, which is more like a circuit of activities that it is like a plunking down on any one particular activity, any deep investment on a sort of ongoing quest, such as Jenna just, just described. The, and so what we think is, so this, this is the Montaignan recipe for being happy imminently, is nothing too much, nothing too little, is another phrase that we've tried to use to describe this. That is, it's a kind of moderation in the ancient tradition of that that phrase, nothing too much, which was described, which was inscribed on the on the on the entrance to the Temple of Delphi in in, in ancient Greece, but Montaigne adds this modern corollary to it of, of of nothing too little. So he's 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 interested in everything that human beings uh, have found satisfying over the course of of our broad and uh, and varied history. And he's interested in all those things in spite of the fact that he acknowledges from the outset that none of them is going to prove to be the key to a human life well lived. And what we think, we think that that atmosphere, that attitude is, it is an atmosphere. It is like kind of a gas that those of us living in the modern world breathe in, that we, we're, we're afraid of the question of the summum bonum from the outset. We don't want to ask the question, is there something that could that could make human life worth living and without which it wouldn't be worth living. The, uh, is there something that is the, the quest for the good life, this kind of high stakes operation, which there are right and wrong answers. We think that, that modern people are afraid of this because all of us remember 
the experience of religious war that Montaigne makes so vivid the, uh, in, his, um, in his pages. And so we don't want to ask that question. And so we try to make ourselves happy without asking that question. And then there's this thing that happens that Pascal was the first to identify so powerfully, which is that it turns out that trying to dabble your way to happiness feels existentially empty. And that terrifies people. And Pascal was, as far as we know, the first person to put his finger on that very modern experience. The experience of, of, of refusing to admit that we can't be happy or that happiness is not worth, is not what we should be seeking. The, the experience of trying to dabble your way to happiness and having it fail. Oh, so he wants a much more intense study of our inward soul rather than you can't just putter around in your garden. It's not, that's not going to work. Well, whereas later in your book, you discuss Tocqueville and Tocqueville basically says that the, he, I, well, I'd like to connect the, the, the idea of the bourgeois man that Tocqueville and, and Montaigne were in favor of the sort of middle-class happy nuclear family kind of, although you make the point that Montaigne was, was, doesn't discuss family at all. And, and that, Tocqueville actually, he refused, he said a family is a place of servitude. So these bourgeois men like to be bourgeois, but they want the bohemian life in a way, or the aristocratic life in, in both cases, right? Or sort of aristocratic, the aristocratic bohemian. Anyway, you go with that. I'm just babbling myself. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting uh, question and, and set of connections you're making there. Um, let me talk about Tocqueville first. Um, I think, well, to say something about Montaigne, and then, and then I'll, I'll think a little bit about his, his potential Bobo streak, but um, Montaigne did articulate what um, has been called a kind of proto-bourgeois way, way of life, um, in that he made a kind of self-centered life attractive, in that he tried to circumscribe our vision to um, family, friends, you know, just the world around us, and uh, kind of to get us to tamp down our expectations of, of things like glory um, or other transcendent pursuits, whether that be philosophy or religion. Um, and to just enjoy our private life. So in that sense, Montaigne did set out a very bourgeois form of, um, of, of being. Um, Tocqueville has, I think, a conflicted relationship to the bourgeois way of life. On the one hand, yeah, he was an aristocrat. He came from an aristocratic family that traced its lineage back to the time of William the Conqueror. Um, and he grew up in a chateau. Um, that was owned by his family for, for generations. And so he has that deep um, personal connection to the aristocracy. He was born shortly after the, the French Revolution hit, though, right? So he that, that connection is disrupted and uh, conflicted. And Tocqueville distinguished himself from many of his friends and family members by not uh, choosing not to kind of long for the restoration of the old regime, but to try to play a part in the democratic bourgeois society that was emerging in France and really around around the world or Western Europe at, at the time. So in that sense, he throws his lot in with democracy for sure, which he thinks modern democracy is linked to the bourgeois way of life, to the focus on um, the family, on economics, on private goods. Um, but he's also 
not uh, fully bought into that. He's somebody that thinks on, in the first place that there's never any absolute good in laws, as he says, or there's never really any absolute good in any one way of doing things. So he's always trying to moderate and balance things out. Um, so on the one hand, uh, he's, you know, he's, he's trying to think about how to make democratic bourgeois life better. And he does that in part by trying to remind us of what was good about aristocratic life that we might um, we might take some ingredients from and bring them into our democratic bourgeois world. So I'd point, you know, primarily to um, when, when you say that Tocqueville says the family is a, is a place of servitude, that, that was a particularly sharp remark he was making to his, uh, I think it was sister-in-law in the time of uh, political unrest when she just didn't want to think about it and wanted to just think about her kids. And he was saying, well, that's not really appropriate. Human beings are political beings. They are destined for a kind of greatness on the political in the political sphere. And they're, they're destined to seek a kind of... Um, exalted life in the religious sphere as well. So while he, he certainly respected family life and he writes movingly about it in Democracy in America, even movingly about the bourgeois family life, he wouldn't want our, um, the, our vision to be limited just to that sphere. So while one is to engage well in bourgeois family life, one also should look beyond that sphere um, to, avenue, to um, arenas of greatness, potential greatness like politics and um, religious endeavors. Well, well, Jen, I was just going to say that I believe in the book that you say that that Tocqueville was very much influenced by Montaigne. Is that correct? Or was it Pascal? I'm, I've... Well, Pascal to... had, sorry, uh, Tocqueville had, had three authors he read every day, uh, and those were Pascal, Rousseau, and Montesquieu. Okay. He knew Montaigne mostly through the intermediation of Pascal. And of Pascal, Tocqueville said that, or actually his friend Gustave de Beaumont said that, that um, the souls of, of Tocqueville and Pascal were sort of born for each other. The, uh, and that's this, you know, that there was, there's a kind of complementarity between these two ways of seeing things. And so Tocqueville has something of Pascal's existentialist and, um, and religious sensibility, but he adds to that a political sensibility that you're not going to find in Pascal. Yeah, I was just going to say, because you, Jenna was saying that Tocqueville was believed in, in striving for greatness and Montaigne poo-poos that, although you make the That's point right. too that he was conflicted himself because he tried to be great in his political career and his diplomatic career, but it didn't, but he, he sort of plateaued on that and then he retreated. So was, was Montaigne just making sour grapes kind of saying, well, you know, I didn't make it as a, as a great figure in my public figure in my day therefore I, now I will retreat and and say that that is all neg uh, not necessary to for happiness or do you believe uh, him <laughs> in other words well uh, you know this is an interesting point that that Philippe Desson who's uh, a great university of Chicago scholar who's written a uh, a really important biography of of Montaigne has has made is that you know the, the when Montaigne quit his job as a member of the of the parliament of, of Bordeaux. That wasn't going much of anywhere. And then he started writing the essays. But this actually constituted a political advance for Montaigne and not a retreat. That is, he went home to his chateau. He wrote this, this great book. He had to spend a lot of time alone and removed
removed from politics to do that. But by so doing, he made his name. And one of the ways you can see that he, he made his name is that when he, when he published the, uh, the essays, he put a copy in his saddlebags and he rode off to Paris and he gave it to the king. <laughs> the, and so, and, and not, just, not just one copy for the king, but, but copies for, for, for his various, uh, various ministers. And so Montaigne actually increased in political prominence through his literary activity. Now, no, I don't mean to say this to, to say that Montaigne is simply hypocritical about um, about political life. I think he did want to persuade political people, however, that pri- of of his way of looking at the world, which is to say that private life is actually more important than political life. That it's the locus of real human satisfaction, and he's trying to convey that message to political people to get them to respect private life a little bit more than they do. Hmm. Well. Apropos of the, the the quest for contentment that all of them, which is what the what the book is about, um, it does seem that the, they all have different ideas of how to, as you were saying, how to get that. I mean, he's he's that Montaigne says this the private life is 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 the, is the solution, and but Tocqueville seems to think that that for an example in the American case that Americans are. Are so busy trying to to get ahead and see, see materialism as, as as the way to that happiness that they they're not they're questing all the time. I just want to mention the, to discuss the word quest that, that to me it's it's kind of paradoxical to, that you the contentment a quest is something require requires struggle or effort and exertion, whereas contentment should be quiet and and gentle and and passive. Is there is could, could you just ask, could you and actually I'd like to get back to or to mention you open the book with this this rather poignant encounter with a, a graduate or a student who's just graduating she's trying to decide what to do with her life and she wants to be happy but in order to be happy or to become happy she she feels that she also has to be a person of accomplishment and credentials and so forth and how, how do you how do you how did you address that and what became of her. Do you know? Okay, yeah. Well, um, I've cut, well, you've asked a lot of questions there. I want to say something about um, what you noticed, so nicely noticed in our subtitle, which is that the the quest for contentment is supposed to make you think a little bit in the way that, that it spurred you to, to, to think and ask that question. Because uh, I think what we're trying to say there is there is something kind of paradoxical or questionable in the way that we think about contentment. Um, we see a lot of relation between the way that Montaigne encouraged us to think about contentment as something that is doable, very doable, right? It's not that hard to piddle around in your garden and have a conversation <laughs> with your friend. It's a lot easier seeming than, you know, to try to be a saint. Um, so it seems like it's very well within our reach. Like we should just be able to relax and achieve it like that. Right. And, um, I think what is kind of uh, remarkable about Montaigne, what's worth remarking on about Montaigne's view is that in making it seem like we can quell our restlessness, we can find contentment or find happiness without a whole lot of effort, he makes it into something that we expect we can achieve, right? And that actually, it's not actually that easily easy to achieve um, in part because while it's not so hard to go piddle in your garden, it's hard to feel content while you're doing that because we we think Pascal had a pretty trenchant critique of Montaigne when he said that when you're when you're engaged in these things, you cannot stop your mind from racing off and thinking about, is this really what life is um, meant to be about, right? So when Montaigne tries to get us to contain those questions or not even ask them, and I think one of the things people like Pascal get us to think about is, 
that's not, that's probably not possible. And it's really not what a human being is, is designed to, to be like. It's not what we're meant to be. So what we meant to embed in that quest for contentment subtitle, which I'm so glad you kind of noticed, is that we are often engaged in a kind of endless and frustrating quest for contentment we think should be easily found, but is in fact not, uh, in our view, ultimately not within um, human nature. Well, I was going to say, oh, get, no, Ben, go ahead. You were going to say something. Oh, I was just going to, I was just going to take the part of your question about the student. Yeah, I was interested what happened to her. Well, uh, the, uh, the, the, she's a composite. To, okay. to, in other words, we've had this encounter with lots of students. Mm. Um, and, and what, what struck us uh, really um, powerfully about this was how common it was among the very best students, particularly as they get to the fall of their senior years. Uh, and so, the, you know, the portrait that we painted this student is, is a student who can do all kinds of stuff and has done all kinds of stuff. She's got multiple majors. She's she studied abroad several times. She's, you know, she founds clubs. She's, you know, members of other clubs. Mm. She can do lots of things. And she's thinking law school or a PhD when she starts. And that's totally either one is totally plausible for her. But then the options start to proliferate. Uh, she starts thinking about, you know, maybe I want to be a teacher, or maybe I want to, um, uh, maybe I want to be a farmer. The uh, maybe I want to do all kinds of different things. And what we noticed in this is how little service her education had provided her in the art of choosing. Yes, the art of choosing is very moving. At the end of your book, you conclude with that that whole concept, and that was that was quite touching. About I realized, oh, I wish I'd read this when I was 20, 21. <laughs> That's you know, in a way, we we wish we had too. <laughs> in the in the sense that, um, you know, I, we often see embodied in our educational institutions, this idea of the Renaissance man or the Renaissance person where you're able to do anything. You're, you're, you're well-rounded, as we say. The, um, you do service projects and you have intellectual pursuits and you play a sport and you, and you probably uh, you know, uh, play the harp too. The, uh, <laughs> you, you, have, you, have, you have lots of little stuff that you do. It's, as you can see, it's, it's trying to dabble one's way to fulfillment. You're not plunking down on any one thing. But what you see over the course of the development of a college career is that students, the best students, they get here, they see so many opportunities, they think, wow, look at all the neat stuff I can do. And they wanna do it all. And that's totally understandable because it's what our institutions of, of higher education encourage. But that doesn't help them figure out the answer to the question of how they should live. And that question is a question that, that presents itself with teeth in a, uh, in a society like ours where one really does have to choose a way of life. One has to cut a particular path in the world. And in a sense, this is part, part of just our democratic condition and that we're not Montagnan aristocrats. We can't just yeah. like go hang in the chateau and, 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 you know, horseback ride in the morning and, and, and potter around the garden in the afternoon. Yeah, I was gonna say he presupposes that you're wealthy enough to have a garden. Right, right. And that's, that's exactly right. We got to figure out a way. We got to figure out something that we're going to do with our days that isn't going to make us miserable. The, um, and, and so in that sense, the quest to figure out how we're going to live is it, it comes to a kind of existential sharpness when people are coming to the moment of, of, of graduating from college. And what we're trying to encourage some with the book is, 
the effort to think through the possibilities of human happiness more seriously and more decisively. That is to be willing to say, hmm, you know, uh, joining this club might be kind of fun. There are nice people involved in it. I kind of enjoy chatting with them, but I don't think it's going to be the answer to the question of how I should live. And so I'm going to have to let it go. That's one of the things that we think that people of who are lucky enough to have a liberal education need to learn is the art of ranking their activities and saying no to some things because we just don't have infinite time. That's not what human life is like. Hmm. Oh, Jenna? Yeah, I just um, wanted to remark that in writing the book and thinking and talking about it, we came to realize how... Um, badly we do at guiding the next generation to think about how how they might live i think we tend people today tend to think that you either are you know you're dictating what your children should do um and the only other alternative is just not saying anything about it or or saying phrases like um honey i don't care what you do i just want you to be happy mm. which was frankly a phrase that always made me feel very despairing <laughs> when I heard very well-meaning people told me that um, because it essentially implies that I have no I have nothing to say to help you think through the multitude of choices that you as a citizen in the kind of society we live in have are necessarily going to confront it's just up to you you have one task it's be happy like that's easy, right? I mean, that's not easy. That's really hard. And um, it's because it seems, I think people don't mean it this way, but it puts a, a really great burden on young people without giving them any kind of guidance for how they might go about trying to seek happiness. So that's part of what, what we're trying to do in the book is just to get people thinking about <clears throat> what goes into our assumptions about happiness and how we seek it and how we might reconsider those assumptions. Ben, you wanted to comment on what Jenna was saying? Sure. The, 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 I, was just, I was just struck by Jenna's comment about that, that well-meaning line that so many <laughs> of us have heard so many times, I don't care what you do, I just want you to be happy. I think what, and, and her own reaction to that is one of, uh, of, kind, of kind of despair. <laughs> I think what one hears when somebody says that is, I think the way that it lands, it's like Pascal. The eternal silence of these infinite spaces frightens me is perhaps Pascal's most famous line. And that's what, when, when adult authorities say to young people, you do you, the, um, and I don't have any judgment of that, what they're saying is effectively the universe is silent on the question of how to live. And young people are understandably terrified by that perspective. Well, also too, there's no there's no sense of the, the whole John Kennedy ethic of that's not what your country can do for you, that's what you can do for your country, or or be of service, or help other people be happy, or render other people less unhappy. But um, yeah, it's it's kind of sad. It's it's very it's a very it's a very me generation message too. Well, as long as you're happy, no matter how many people you may ignore or or exploit in your in your quest. Jenny, you wanted to say something? I'm, or, no, I'm, I'm sorry. Well, I, I, I could, um, to continue this, uh, this thread that you brought up, is um, I might say that there are, I, I think we're uneasy to, to say something about happiness, because again, we think that um, we don't want to be, we don't want to be, um, we don't want to dictate what our children do or what our students do. But I, I think there is a, there's a way to guide people 
without, <laughs> you know, just sort of instructing them. I don't think that's possible. First of all, you really cannot like program someone to do what you want them to do, but we have that kind of, we're worried about that um, specter. But um, one of the things we're trying to do in the book and that we also try to do with our teaching is give students um, or readers examples of different ways of life that we would like them to take, we think are worthy of being taken seriously. Mm. Montaigne, Pascal, Rousseau, and Tocqueville all live different lives and they have different understandings of what's worthy um, uh, to what, what kind of things are worthy to devote your life to. And it's really only by taking each one of them and others uh, very seriously and trying to see the world through their eyes to try to see life as they've lived it, that you can make uh, the choice for yourself about how to live, right? So um, the the kind of, mid, you might say middle way or the alternative to just dictating what someone should do or leaving it entirely up to them is to help them see that there are different ways of life that each comes with its own kind of satisfactions and its own shortcomings and that you can you can really um, see the contours of, of lives while say reading about them. And that's what can help you make an informed decision. We, we would hope that someone like our student would actually encounter these thoughts earlier on in their college career and use these very precious, this very precious time that so many Americans get to um, sort of indulge in to uh, exercise this art of choosing or inform themselves about the various choices that they can, that, they, that, they're, that are gonna stand before them and, and be more disposed to be able to make a good one. Well, at this point, I just want to remind listeners that we were talking today with Ben and Jetta Story about their book, Why We Are Restless on the Modern Quest for Contentment. I should say Benjamin and Jenna Story, because that's how the, your name appears on, on the book. So Why We Are Restless on the Modern Quest for Contentment. And I'd like to switch a little bit to the books as literature. And you meet, they're really fascinating. I enjoy it. I must say that sometimes I find philosophy or political theory pretty dry, but this was a this was a very interesting book and very engaging. And, and I felt that I learned a lot about French history. I learned a lot about American history in the Tocqueville chapter in particular. But I'd like to read some of the things that I learned about liter the literary aspects of the book, about the literary aspects of the authors. Um, I'm going to go on for a little bit. But one of the things I learned is that you credit with Montaigne with basically establishing the essay form, which was fascinating to me. And you mentioned people that, that read him, like Virginia Woolf, who, who was a famous essayist herself. You point out that Pascal's Pensées, translated in English as, as thoughts, is one of the first, perhaps even the first example of a collection of writings published after the author's de death that had been carefully collected and, and edited. I thought that was fascinating. And you discuss that, again, you, you talked about how Pascal was a satirist, who very skillful one. You talked about his satir satire of the Jesuits. And you made the point that Rousseau was unusual in his day in signing his books with his own name, given that the time, the custom of the time was to publish anonymously, anonymously or under a pen name. And was Rousseau seeking fame in that in that way, or was he just, or was he just basically realize was that was that a public marketing tool that oh I I am Rousseau I am the person I am the celebrity that you need to read. Um, <laughs> or the that's thinker a, you need to read. The, 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 your question puts its finger on one of the great contradictions of, of Rousseau's character. Uh, Rousseau, on the one hand, you know, he was maybe maybe the most successful author of the 18th century in France. He's incredibly influential in his own time, not just as a political philosopher, but as the composer of an opera. 
the, his opera, The Village Soothsayer, has, is sometimes thought to have been the most popular opera of the 1750s. I did not then, know that. I didn't know that. I also yes. didn't. I also didn't know that, that how important Montaigne was. I had just I just saw him as a French name. He was always just a name to me. But after reading your book, I realized this was an incredibly important figure. I had no idea. That's right. Everybody uh, in the learned world of Europe for a couple of centuries read Montaigne. He's, he's you know his his in this sense his his influence is just incalculable. But to to return to Rousseau on the on the, on the opera, I was just uh, thinking about that, reading a little bit about this the other day in his confessions. Apparently, one day after a performance of the Village Soothsayer, his opera, the king was in attendance, Louis the Fifteenth, and he spent his uh, apparently the next day. Somebody reported to Rousseau that. Louis was wandering around the palace singing one of the arias from Rousseau's <laughs> opera the uh, in the most out of tune voice in the entire French kingdom the <laughs> you know is what is is what somebody reported about this um, similarly uh, Rousseau's novel Julie the uh, was one of the most important novels one of the best selling novels of the whole 18th century so he's another figure who um, doesn't just speak to an audience but helps define an audience by putting his philosophy or his thought about politics, sentiments, the uh, God, everything else into this kind of novel form. The, um, that is something that Rousseau is doing to draw new readers in the, um, to the world of um, argument in which he is engaged. Now, he is himself deeply conflicted about this whole thing. Rousseau famously celebrates natural man, the natural solitary. He knows that being an author is, in a certain sense, a highly social way of life, right? You're, you're out there in public in your words. And so Rousseau kind of he keeps writing, but he keeps writing about the fact that he regrets being an author, which is which is which is a sort of strange and paradoxical thing um, to do. So, uh, with respect to his practice of of signing his books and specifically signing them as a citizen of Geneva, Rousseau, uh, and this is a point that is made by the the great Rousseau scholar Christopher Kelly. Rousseau was trying to take ownership of his own thought, take responsibility for it. Uh, to a degree that he thought was not present in an author like Voltaire, for example, who constantly Voltaire is itself a pen name, the um, and and Voltaire is 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 constantly writing under a pen name, which many people in Rousseau's time did, and so in this sense he meant to uh, take a particular uh, to to be particularly responsible for what he said in public by signing his books in this way and to take up the role of citizenship as an author. Rousseau was, was born in Geneva. He, uh, in the 1750s, he re reacquired his Genevan citizenship after mm -hmm. having lost it the, uh, when he ran away from home as a, um, as a young man. And he wanted to inhabit the character of a Republican citizen taking a kind of responsibility for what he says in public as an author. Yeah, I was going to say that I referred to them as French language writers because he he, he identified he, his citizenship of those days, although citizenship was rather fluid in those days, right? It wasn't recognizably nations, although France was an exception, it really did have an identity as a nation, definitely had <laughs> under, the, under the French kings, but but he was he identified as you say as a as a citizen of Geneva. How important was that that he was writing the French language and 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 you make an you you discuss his his um, his contempt or his disavowal of all things Parisian that he he dumped he dumped on Paris. He did it was found a decadent and and shallow and so forth. But then he 
what, what, is he considered a French thinker now, or is he considered a French language thinker? Is he considered a Swiss thinker? Is he an international thinker? Or that's a that's a, that's a very fair point. Uh, Hope that we just call it four French. We call them four French thinkers. But you're right. You know, Rousseau is in fact Genevan. Uh, on the other hand. Um, It'd be hard to describe an author who wrote in the French language, who did more to influence the mm. life and literature of France than uh, than Rousseau. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, Rousseau is oftentimes credited or blamed for inspiring the French Revolution. Uh, for uh, for example, and if you go to Paris and you go to the Pantheon, this this museum of, of of French history and 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 particularly its intellectual life, there you will find the tomb of Rousseau facing off with the tomb of Voltaire. These two men who hated each other the um, in the uh, in the course of their lives, but but France obviously remembers Rousseau as one of its own, even if uh, even if he was somebody who came to France from the outside. And I think that's that's in many ways a fair presentation of Rousseau. Rousseau did spend the, the large majority of his adult life in France. And even though he detested Paris, it's a, he, he is in many ways a very French figure the, um, who is intimately involved in all the literary and aesthetic quarrels of Paris in his own time. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm glad you mentioned Voltaire, because that's another thing I learned from your book was how this great champion of liberty and freedom of thought was pretty vicious towards Rousseau and wanted him almost the calling for at least, if not his death, his beating up or his or the arson of his home or just some kind of drastic mob action against him. And that was pretty shocking for for, for to me too. But I shouldn't be surprised because Voltaire was kind of a disgusting person in many ways. <laughs> but 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 I but I was surprised by that particular incident. So yeah, okay. it's 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 very interesting. I mean, you know, we begin the book with Montaigne's reaction uh, to religious fanaticism and his creation of this uh, nonchalant way of life as a response, as an alternative to that kind of fanaticism. And but what you, you know, Rousseau has this as his brilliant and and telling line. He says. There's many a man in, in, in my time, in the, in the 18th century, who thinks of himself as a free thinker and a philosopher who would have been nothing but a fanatic at the time of the League. And in, in the incidents that you refer to, where, the, where the, Voltaire, the, league, the League being... Oh, oh thank you. The, uh, the League being the Catholic League oh. of Montaigne's time. That's the ultra-Catholic party of, um, of Montaigne's time. And, and, and Rousseau was saying, there are lots of people who think of themselves as philosophers in my time, in the 18th century, who are actually actuated by the same spirit of ideological fanaticism that actuated uh, these ultra-Catholics of, um, of Montaigne's time. And you can, you can see this in Voltaire, who really did try to stir up a mob to stone Rousseau. And, um, they, and this mob did, in fact, go to Rousseau's house in a, 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 a town called Motier and start throwing rocks at the windows. <laughs> so on, a false, is, on a false accusation, moreover, right? Because you say, yeah. It, 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 so a partially false, partially actually, false. A, a, accusation that is Voltaire exposed the fact that Rousseau had put all his children in a, a in an orphanage, and that is true. But he also accused Rousseau of attempting to uh, of uh, I can't remember if it was attempted murder or actual murder of his mother-in-law, and that was false. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I was I was yeah that that, that is a, a, get it, well on the subject of violence that one of the powers of your book is you make the point that 
how incredibly close all of them came to danger or violence. Every single one of them at the group. Uh, Montaigne experienced it in his own courtyard that um, Jen Tocqueville's parents were mentally shattered or, or damaged by what, what they went through. And But apropos of the religious wars that Ben was talking about, I'd like to ask about Tocqueville's reaction to American religion that he he felt that, that he found it a little bit just from as a cat as an ardent French Catholic, or was he an ardent French Catholic? His reaction to American Protestantism of the day, he, he could you discuss that a little bit about what and how that reflected his, in his in his reaction to America that his views that of this not basically primarily non-Catholic society. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a good question. Um, so Tocqueville's own. Uh, religion is uh, complicated. He was raised Catholic, as, as you indicate, his family was, was Catholic. Um, but he had an experience reading through his father's library, including some volumes of, I believe, Voltaire in his, in his teenage years, yeah, that um, caused him to largely lose his, lose his faith. So he's, he's, he's not, um, He's a complicated figure when it comes to religion, at the least. And there's lots of debates about what he really thinks and, and feels. But um, he, his view about um, religion in American democracy is that it's a very useful, well, first of all, it is, he looks at it in part as a sociologist, right? As someone who sees that it's a very useful kind of leavening uh, agent um, to the American quest, to the American preoccupation with, for example, material goods, right? So it strikes him very powerfully that Americans take a Sabbath at the time. Everything shut down, the store shut down, there was no commercial activity on Sundays, as he reports um, in America at the time. And he's astonished by this. And it sounds, there's no postal delivery on Sunday, was that from That's that? right. Yeah. That's right. And it, it sounds... Um, I, I believe that was not the case in France. He, he writes about it with such astonishment, leads me to believe it's not the case in France at the time. But I think he's also even more astonished because the Americans are the most commercial people he's ever met, right? And that they would stop their commercial activity on Sunday. It's almost like a miracle, right? And um, he says it makes them pass at least distracting, distracted glances toward heaven, Right. So we're busy, busy, busy all week long. And then then we just stop and we go to church and we think about um, higher things that we consider our duties to, to God and our neighbor. And then perhaps afterwards, we spend time with with uh, families, friends and neighbors and, and so forth. And and don't think about uh, getting ahead per day. You know, so he, in part, he looks at American religion as a sociologist and as, a, as something that's really uh, necessary to preserve the health of American democracy, because he thinks that for American democracy to, to work well, democratic peoples will have to have their eye on some kind of greatness, as I was talking about before, something that transcends our a kind of ordinary day-to-day existence as you know our commercial life would be entirely wrapped up in um, he thinks that if, if we get too preoccupied with things like commerce and family these these goods of private life these bourgeois goods then we will give over um, the duty of governing to experts who will flatter us but essentially deprive us of what he thinks America has in, in, in a great treasure of American life which is the opportunity to, to self-govern even on you know, small scale, even in, in, in small matters that pertain to the localities. 
Well, it's interesting too. I looked, I was curious who was president when he came in 1831, 1832, and it was Andrew Jackson, who was a quintessential great man. I mean, he was a person who did rise up from nothing through ruthlessness and accomplishment and that he wondered, I wonder what he thought of, of Andrew Jackson. I mean, in, in terms of, in terms of just in, the, the greatness aspect. And I think that, that, that Tocqueville seems to be the only one of the four that you profile that seems to want greatness or, 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 stri or striving in the sort of ten so ten, the, the Alfred Lord Tennyson sense of to seek, to strive and not to yield. And because the others are, the, the, they all seem to want to be happy or, or not, or in Pascal's case, to not necessarily seek greatness, but to, to, to address misery. <laughs> but is that correct? I mean, how, are they, how do they respond to the, the greatness? As, and I think that's what troubled your students in a way. I think she probably thought, I want to be I want to accomplish something and I, and I'm trying to figure out how to do that. Otherwise she wouldn't be troubled when she, she would just become an occupational therapist or something. But I mean, wouldn't it be that she, that she felt that I have this, 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 this God given set of skills and it would, that I, I'm obligated to, to capitalize on the best effect or, or that's what, I guess that's why she was torn because she wasn't sure. That's, well, that's really interesting observation. Um, I think that, um, I think we often, you're right, we, we sort of stimulate our, we often stimulate students in, you know, very good uh, liberal arts colleges and universities like Furman and other places to think about, uh, we usually say making an impact. I think the term great would great on us, right? We don't like to think of great because it implies better than something else, but we do like to talk about making some kind of impact and that arouses um, some thought about being, you know, distinctive or great. And, um, and yet, it's similar to the question of happiness, we don't often guide students to think about what would um, not just make an impact, but make a, <laughs> do something that is actually positive and worthwhile, and what it would actually mean to do something that is worthy of the name um, greatness. So I think um, there's a line from Tocqueville, I'm trying to recall, we have very, we tend to um, encourage very sensitive souls that long for great things, but aren't necessarily capable of seeing what that means and disciplining themselves to potentially achieve that. So I think that is a, uh, a sort of problem among our young people that um, we should we should actually think more about. I think um, uh, hope just a couple other parts of your your question there, uh, with respect to a Andrew Jackson, uh, Tocqueville didn't like him the uh, because uh, the, the Tocqueville at the end of the day is an aristocrat and uh, yeah. he has, <laughs> Andrew Jackson did not like aristocrats <laughs> and and Tocqueville uh, he cared about refinement and he cared about intellectual things and he cared about um, he he cared about a kind of decency. The um, that I don't think uh, he saw in in Jackson and 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 his sort of his sort of rabble rousing um, tendencies, but I wanted to uh, think about. But but this is this is not to say that Tocqueville didn't care about greatness. You're very right that he did, and I wanted to uh, pick up on your on your on your sense about um, Pascal with this. Pascal is on the one hand um, somebody who's focused on human misery, but he thinks that human misery proves human greatness. Mm. In other words. Only a being as great as uh, man could be as miserable as man. So Tocqueville, uh, so Pascal says rather, we are, 
we're mortal, of course, but so are trees. And the thing is, like, trees aren't depressed by the fact that they're mortal, and we are, um, because we can, we're self-conscious. We can understand it. Um, and so Tocqueville see, uh, Pascal sees our misery and our greatness as two sides of the same coin. And I think you can really see this in Pascal's life. There's no one who uh, less satisfied with any kind of mediocrity than Blaise Pascal. And so he's, he's just an amazing figure. The, uh, that is, he is a person who actually has world historical impact in this astonishing variety of fields. And so he's a great geometrician the, um, who does work on uh, the problems of conic sections and what's also called the cycloid. He's a great mathematician who uses what's called Pascal's triangle to create the basis of what has come to be known as probability theory. He's a great physicist the, um, who demonstrates the, the, the weight of air and the phenomena of, um, of atmospheric pressure the units of pressure are to this day referred to as Pascal's. He's a great inventor who comes up with one of the world's first mechanical calculators that, that, can, uh, that can add, subtract, multiply, and divide sums of, of up to eight digits. He then goes into literary controversy with the provincial letters. He writes this astonishing work of existential philosophy and Christian apologetics, which is the pensée. And then he gives Paris its first system of public transportation. And he does does all that by the time he dies, which is at the age of 39. Um, so Pascal is a figure of just astonishing greatness in all of these venues of human endeavor. And when he makes his religious turn, the only thing he's he's not interested in like adding a little sprinkling of piety to an effectively bourgeois life, which is which is uh, frankly a lot of what. Uh, Tocqueville sees when he comes to America, Pascal is interested in becoming a saint, mm. and um, and oh, is he? Is he? I didn't. Is, does he? Does he say so explicitly? I mean, I, actually, I'm not sure that I'm. I'm not sure that he says that explicitly. But it's. But it's the obvious thrust hmm. of of what he's doing in this. And I heard in an interview with you recently, and I want to encourage listeners to listen to the other interviews with you to 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 Google your names and the name of the book because the other interviews are excellent, but you made it made in one of those, the, 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 uh, one of the other interviews that he's being considered for sainthood. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, actually, I'm not sure that by a, by a Jesuit. Right? Well, that, that's the interesting thing is I, actually, I'm not sure if there's a formal process has been, has been begun, but I know that, uh, that Pope, uh, Pope Francis suggested it, the, um, and it's a, uh, as, you know, and he suggested it as Pope. So I, I assume some wheels got, moving. but the, um, but it is a, um, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic idea. When you read the life of Pascal, you're like, oh, okay, there's, there's, there, there's, there, there's a case, the, uh, for something like this, but, you know, it, in a sense, you could say about Pascal what um, what the uh, much later French thinker uh, Charles Peggy said, which is that you know Peggy said the only tragedy is not to be a saint. In mm. other words, you know Peggy, there was no satisfaction in ordinary life for Peggy. It's like sainthood or nothing. And um, in a way, you can see that kind of spirit in somebody like Pascal, who just like he burns through things, right? He's going to be, he's not just going to be a, a scientist or a mathematician or a geometer or an inventor. He's going to like push it to the extreme. He's going to get very, very far with this. He's like, in the, he's just, he's like, he's like, 
like a uh, um, somebody like um, Steve Jobs, this great technologist, rolled up with Stephen Hawking, rolled up with Albert Einstein, the um, who is also the Philip Roth of his own era. I mean, it's, well, I was going to say, as you were speaking about his accomplishments, I was thinking of Isaac Newton, who who wrote, who was the great, probably the greater scientist, but a terror, but but his no one reads any of his well, slightly goofy religious writings, right? They're just completely ignored. <laughs> whereas whereas Pascal, he accomplished everything in all of those fields that's that that's what's so amazing about this guy and you know it's this this life that is discontent with anything but the highest reaches of 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 human endeavor and in a way you know so you know it, um the the later french writer chateaubriand called pascal a frightening genius and that's right there's something terrifying about contemplating this guy the um and his way of life but I think what we're trying to say in part with the book is that we need more of this. And this is something that Tocqueville emphasizes that the problem with democratic human beings is not that they're not sufficiently interested in greatness. It's that they're not interested in greatness enough. And I mm -hmm. think that's, that's something that, that Pascal brings out in his very unusual way, right? There's not a political greatness that Pascal is interested in. Tocqueville will be more interested in that. The, um, but it is a, um, a real uh, intransigent quest to find what really satisfies, what really gives meaning to a human existence. So it would be a moral greatness. In Pascal's case, I think that's it's a moral greatness, it's an intellectual greatness, these two things combined. Well, speaking of greatness and the opposite of greatness is, is you, refer, you, you talk, you use the phrase that, or you refer to Rousseau's phrase about his own system, it was a sad and great system that it was a great concept, but even he realized it was unworkable. And you tell some, I was surprised in your, in your, by your book, in your book to learn that he was actually, could poke fun at himself. I always think of him as this rather pompous, impossible person, but he actually had some self-awareness. Could you tell the story of, of the, the stocking factory? I thought that was hilarious. And yeah, this is a, this is a funny story. This is from um, Rousseau's Reveries of Solitary Walker. And Rousseau is there. He's describing his experiments in, in, in putting the barometer to his soul, as he puts it. And, and by the way, I just want to offer a footnote here that I, I think this, this habit that we may have picked up from Rousseau of constantly taking our own temperature is a really bad idea. The, um, that is a really bad way to pursue happiness is constantly asking yourself the question, am I, am I content? Well, Rousseau does that the, um, in great detail in the um, in the reveries and and one of the things that he's trying to show there is how he can he has learned to enjoy the sentiment of existence in solitude the sentiment of existence is this sort of technical phrase of Rousseau's philosophy in which he's showing which he's trying to describe how a human being can be happy just being alive the and he describes certain experiences in which he sees himself doing that one of them is on a um a swiss mountainside in in which he's he's entered into this secluded thicket and he imagines himself like another Columbus, that is, you know, having uh, discovered a place that nobody has ever discovered before, and therein enjoying the psychic experience of the sentiment of existence that maybe nobody has ever discovered before. And then he hears this noise, and thump, thump, thump. <laughs> And he says, what, what is that? And he, and he pushes his way through some underbrush and he, and he finds that there's a stocking mill churning away 20 feet from his supposedly undiscovered country. And he laughs at himself. And that is a, you know, that is a funny thing that goes on in Rousseau is that 
he's got all these like dramatic and hardcore and extreme experiments in living that he's that he's describing over the course of of what he calls this sad and great system of his um of his thought but these things tend to blow up and rousseau tends to be aware of the fact that they blow up and i think that's something that has been underrated in the scholarship on rousseau that is that people don't recognize the degree to which rousseau is aware of the limits of his own experiments I'd like to bring Jenna back into this for just a moment to ask you both that this book was 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 on in in process of publication when the pandemic hit, correct? Or and it was it, you had already written it, but it seems exquisitely well timed for because there's sort of this well there is this grand re reimagining of the entire world order from 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 how we live on an individual level in terms of the the, the solitude that people have been the the the, the stay-at-home orders and so forth i wonder if you could talk about how how you might how, might have written the book differently in terms of addressing the matter of solitude in the pandemic i mean do you do you read it differently in the post-pandemic era or is it or is it would you not change not have changed a word that this is exactly the book we need for now yeah, so um, we finished the book shortly before the pandemic hit, and it was it was accepted. Well, actually, so it wasn't quite yet accepted for publication when the pandemic hit. And I think our first thought when we were sent home was, "Oh no, no one's restless and frenetic and you know running here and there as they were, <laughs> as when we described you know this problem in our book." And I think our initial fear was. This is not going to be relevant anymore. Bad timing. Um, but then, after you know a week or so, we realized uh, a couple of things. One, that having to stay at home, as as we all did, particularly in the initial months, allowed. I, I think we we kept hearing that a lot of people felt um, strangely relieved. You know, particularly if they weren't people that were hit. Um, maybe in, in places of the country that weren't hit hard um, by economic if they weren't losing their jobs or really suffering the consequences of, of the pandemic as a health um, disaster, they were actually glad to have all those things struck off the calendar. Mm -hmm. and they felt guilty about it and, and, and so forth because they knew other people were suffering. But I think it was actually a good moment for reflection um, in which we looked back at the lives that we had been living prior to the shutdown of March 2020 and said, why were we doing that to ourselves? Um, and at least, you know, from where we stand, the world got back to, you know, more or less normal with masks um, this year. And so we're back in the, the hustle bustle of things. And we are trying to remember that moment when we thought that we should really look at our lives and how we were living them and think about making making some changes. So that that was our initial initial uh, set of thoughts when when the shutdown came about last year. I was going to say you, you you talked about the the book being being in press. Could you could you tell, ex explain why? What did you approach Princeton University Press or or did they or did they did Robert P George who edits the the series New Forum Books approach you about it or did you, or or was what was the process? I was curious because you you went with Princeton University Press, but why the particular series New Forum mm -hmm. Books? Okay, well, um, I guess I'd say we were this kind of goes back to what we were trying to do with the book in the first place, which is to write 
a, a book that was deeply informed by our scholarship and, and our teaching, but that would be of more general interest. And um, that's, that's, academics are often told that, that that's um, a fruitless quest, that there is no general reader who's actually interested in what you do. And um, so first of all, we had to have the faith that such people exist and they do, um, but, and they do, but um, we, you have to kind of, you know, you have to imagine that audience and, and have faith that that audience is there. And then we were, you know, thinking about, well, we, we encountered um, Rob Tempio and Eric Crayon at Princeton University Press hmm. and Robbie George, um, while we were spending a year in Princeton and um, Ben had a visiting fellowship at the James Madison program, which is a program that Robbie George <clears throat> founded and, and now directs. Um, I was just going to say and, for people who are not familiar with Rob, Robbie George, it's also Robert P. George of Princeton. Oh, true. He's, uh, because, but he's known to everyone who admire, or he's, he's very quick to say, call me Robbie, even though he's this very distinguished person. <laughs> so That's right. That's right. So he has a wonderful group of, of scholars and students around the James Madison program. And we spent, and he, you know, both of us spent the year in uh, the company of those people. And we also got to know people at the Princeton University Press. And I think one thing that um, the press does very well, and I, I, we know Eric and, and Rob Tempio best at the press, but and they definitely have their eye on trying to, um, trying to make a home for these crossover books, these mm. academic slash trade books. Um, Rob in particular really believes in uh, public intellectual life. Mm. I've heard that he's an admirer of the kind of mid mid 20th century um, era in which you had people, you know, you had magazines like partisan journals, like partisan review yeah. that were like the, the, you know, the going concern at the time. And there were, there were intellectual debates swirling around those journals that had implications and interest for a great variety of people. And I think he's trying, um, he's trying and succeeding in creating that kind of, um, interest and buzz around around the series of books that that he publishes. He deeply believes that scholars um, and philosophers have something to say about how to live that people are just going to be interested in if we can explain it in a way that isn't bound, you know, to our particular academic conventions or the kind of little squabbles we often get into in our professional lives. Yeah, just to add a, a quick uh, note to, to what Jenna's, uh, Jenna's saying there about the, the really important work that, that Rob and, and Eric and all the people at, at Princeton University Press do, you know, we were in graduate school at the University of Chicago, and the University of Chicago was the sort of place where everyone just assumed that it was a perfectly reasonable thing to do, to spend a lot of time reading authors like Plato and Pascal and Homer <laughs> and so on. And then we arrived at Furman University, which has been our home for the last uh, 15 years. And that is not the assumption of most of our students here. And so we have to go into the classroom and prove it to them every day the, um, that it is worth their trouble to read somebody like, um, like Plato. And the, the demand that students are making of us here is a very reasonable demand, right? They're asking that we justify the demand that we make on their time to spend that time doing things like, like, like reading Montaigne. And so they have, in a way, educated us in the art of making our arguments clearly to people who are open 
and uh, get more and more interested as they as they as they engage in um, in these kind of intellectual pursuits. But don't take those things for granted or as um, as obvious. And so, we think that you know the work that we've learned to do as liberal arts college professors has really been. Um, uh, is something that we we're really able to draw on in trying to contribute to the work that um, that people like like Rob Tempio and Eric Crane are doing at Princeton University Press by by trying to keep philosophy relevant for people. I think mm -hmm. Rob has a really deep belief in that. I've got a couple of his other books here that are you know there's a book called um, you know How to Win an Argument, the um, <laughs> uh, an ancient guide to the art of persuasion. It's a volume of Cicero. You know this is really just a nice thing that Rob is um, is putting out into the world that is trying to keep ancient thought relevant for modern people by showing that it speaks to their concerns. Well, I was going to make a joke and say, well, Cicero ended with his head cut off, but I'll try not to <laughs> <laughs> make that obvious joke, but oh, it's too late. I just did. Um, well, one of the things I'd like to ask about, you, you talk about, well, we're approaching the end, but I just want to say that oftentimes towards the end of the interview in the New Books Network, we ask, what's your, what's your next project? But I was interested in one, In what, there's a very good podcast interview with, with you both on the American, actually, I think it's both of you, because well, sometimes one of yes, you, is, yeah, sometimes it's one of you and the other was the other, um, but this one was the American Enterprise Institute, and you've just been appointed fellows to that. And I was interested because you are, Ben was talking about making philosophy relevant. What do you hope to do there? Because that is kind of, I think of that as a very policy driven, real world, economics, public policy center, but you're, but, but Ben was saying, well, we're, we want to make philosophy relevant. What, what, what were your goals for your fellowship and what, what will, what will it entail? Thank you. So we will be, um, we're very fortunate. Yes, visiting scholars, right? So it's a it's a one year fellowship while we're on sabbatical next year. Oh, and yes, so we'll be we'll be we'll be uh, joining the um, social, cultural, and constitutional studies program. Oh, and that's a fairly American new program. So it's a fairly program. that's right. It's a fairly new program that was um, founded and is is directed by a graduate school friend of ours, Yuval Levin, who um, himself. Yes, I've, inter I've, I've interviewed him. He's very okay. Quick. That's right. So he, he does a wonderful job bridging uh, things that like what we do, political philosophy, but also being, as you say, a, a very, very sophisticated policy analyst. Um, we only bring sort of half of half of that to the table here. Um, we are not going to write policy next year, rest assured. But um, what we do hope to do is contribute to the work of his um, of his program, uh, which brings together uh, people like uh, his, some of his founding um, members were Ross Douthit, J.D. Vance, um, Thomas Chatterton Williams recently joined Diana Schaub of Loyola, Maryland. So he wow. brings together yeah, a lot of people, those names that people may know, um, who are thinking about um, how we might live well in the contemporary world, both personally and politically. And that's that's the kind of aspect of the work of AI that we'd like to contribute to. Um, we, uh, while we're there, we're going to be working on the, the beginning of our next book, which is oh. going, yes, yeah, so, so that, and, and this next book um, is going to develop the political implications, you might say, of this, of this book, Why We Are Restless. And you're writing um, it together? We're we're writing that together as well. Yes. Was this, was this the first book? The, the the one we're the book we're discussing today is that the first book you've written together? It's the it's the first book we've written together. We've written um, articles and book reviews and some other things before that. Um, in a sense, we met in graduate school, so 
quite a while ago now. And we've been, you know, reading and talking together for, I guess, about 20 years. And so in a, in a sense, we, we've grown more and more um, alike and we've grown to, to, to engage in more and more of our pursuits in common. Uh, so we've, you know, we've kind of grown, grown to the position where we're, we're doing most things together um, and we do plan to write together at least for the, for the near future. So that was a rewarding experience. Did you ever have any, well, this is a personal question. Did you ever have any quarrels about, no, 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 we need more Montaigne. No, 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 I want more Tocqueville. <laughs> or were you basically um, started out and you said, yes, we agree from the start. <laughs> well, I don't think we disagreed about the authors that we were going to include. Um, I think initially, if you go back um, quite a while ago, we, we had different opinions about those authors um, just uh, personally and then bet between ourselves. Um, I wasn't that much of a fan of Montaigne at the beginning. Uh, ben has an interesting story he might want to tell um, about. We've grown to, to appreciate all of these. I think we've both grown to appreciate all of these authors quite a bit more as we've worked on them and talked to each other about them and been brought to see what is so beautiful about them from, you know, from one of us seeing something first. Um, but uh, we tend to, now we tend to, we might have different opinions about what someone is saying or what we should say, but we, we tend to have our big quarrels over things like what, you know, what word goes in that sentence or should there be a comma? Because we're both very particular about <laughs> style and it's, it's, a, it's a very strange and challenging thing to try to write a book that um, not only makes an argument, but draws the reader along emotionally. Um, it's, it's a very challenging thing to write write in that, that particular kind of style with somebody else. So that's really been the great drama of the past few years for us is learning how to, to write that way together. But probably, oh, go ahead, Ben, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to, um, Jenna mentioned the, 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 the story, the, um, of, of my, my original attitude toward, um, toward Pascal. So when we started this whole thing way back in graduate school, I was writing a dissertation on Montaigne and actually it was even before the dissertation, I was getting ready for my fundamentals exam as a student at the committee on social thought at the university of Chicago. And, um, and that, that, that exam consists of a, a list of 15 different books in the categories of, of philosophy and history and, and literature put together by the student that has to be approved by everybody on the faculty of the Committee on Social Thought. And one member of the faculty of the Committee on Social Thought took a look at my list and said, there's nothing Christian on here. And yeah. as as somebody who's just preparing to think about the world, you ought to have some clue the, um, about- um, for that about, professor, that wouldn't, I wonder if that would happen today. Uh, the, well, that's interesting. That, that professor was, it was Carl Weintraub, the, um, who, has, who has since died. And I don't think he's, I don't think uh, Carl Weintraub was, was Christian, the, um, as, far as, I, uh, as far as I know. I'm not sure about that, but that wasn't the impression the, um, that I had. He just thought that this was something that I should know. And he looked at my, my list and he saw Montaigne there and he knew that Montaigne was, was, was important to me. And he thought, you ought to read Pascal because Pascal is so deeply engaged the, um, with Montaigne. And I thought, okay. And I went off to the bookstore and I bought a copy of Pascal and I read a hundred pages and I threw it across the room and I vowed that, the, um, that I was never going to touch this awful, depressing book again. <laughs> And um, actually, I actually managed to keep, I managed to reject uh, Carl Weintraub's suggestion and get him to 
sign the list in the absence of um, of of Pascal, and uh, and I put this whole thought aside for about a decade. And then, um, you know, three things sort of changed my view about this. One, the uh, Jenna's influence. <laughs> Another, the um, influence of actually a student of mine who was very interested in Pascal. And thirdly, these encounters I kept having on the conference circuit with uh, a scholar named Peter Augustine Lawler, who um, unfortunately died in 2017. And I kept um, having these arguments with, with Peter, the me from my very sort of secular Montaignan point of view, and Peter from his deeply... Um, deeply Christian Pascalian Tocquevillian point of view. And I kept losing. And um, <laughs> so I, I wondered, what does this guy know that I don't know? And uh, that led me to read Pascal again. And when I read Pascal again as an older man and who'd seen a little bit more of the world, I realized that suffering was a great, much larger part of the human experience than I had been willing to acknowledge when I was young and that I needed to, to take that seriously with Pascal to see the prominence of unhappiness in the human experience, which is something I think I really didn't want to see the first time I encountered him. And so that was, you know, that's something on which my mind deeply changed over the course of the process of, of researching and writing this book. Well, I, I just want to say that you you both make, render Pascal on all of the thinkers you profile very vivid and very moving. And I, I wouldn't want to be a Pascalian because it is such a, a grueling, unforgiving demanding worldview, but I certainly am glad I read the book to understand it. I, I had no background at all in it. And now I, I, I know you, you're busy parents and you need to go, but Jenna, did you want to say anything in conclusion or? Oh, um, well, I could, um, I could say a little bit about what we're planning to work on next. If that's yes, I would, I would like to hear it. I would, because that's, okay. that's a traditional part of the New Books Network. Oh, okay, great. Um, so uh, as I was uh, mentioning before, we hope to begin, we will begin our, our work on the next, what will become the next book um, next year at, while we're working at AEI. And the next book is going to have a much more explicitly political dimension to it. So this book we consider um, what we would call political anthropology. Yes. Well, I'm sorry, is it contemporary political or, or political oh. thought over the centuries? I see what you're saying. Um, well, we want to try to, like in this, the book we've just written, we want to try to deal with a contemporary problem, right? So in the last one, we've dealt with the problem of restlessness. and But to understand that problem, we feel like you have to look at it in the light of the history of political philosophy, or that's what we, that's what we aim to bring to that, that discussion about, say, restlessness. And um, we're not exactly sure what kind of form the book, our next book will take. I don't think it will be the exact same form as this one, but we'll be doing what we know how to do, which is to bring um, the history of political philosophy to bear on a contemporary question. Um, and that, that question, um, to, to look at it from the point of, of view of this book is, you know, we realize that if, if, if we're very, if we're restless in the way that we describe restlessness, that means, you know, we're full of activity, but we don't know where we're going. And particularly if that is describing um, the outlook of our elite young people or our elites in general, this is a problem for the whole country. And I think we can see the sort of personal problem of restlessness writ large in our country, where we're very anxious about things. We want to do things. We want change. But we're not exactly quite sure where we want that to go or how to justify that. Um, and correspondent with 
that sense that things aren't quite right and we want to, we want to we want to engage in some kind of activity but we're not sure of where we want it to go is the sense that the current structures or institutions we have aren't really working for us so this is in part where our work our future work will dovetail with the work of someone like you've all been perhaps you've yeah, interviewed <laughs> for the his latest book time to build which is about um, his sense that we should be trying at the moment to think about what's going wrong with our institutions he thinks they're being used as what he calls platforms as modes for self-advancement self-advancement rather than 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 molds to shape ourselves into people that are suitable to working for working together so you've all and and many people at ai have a concern to um a concern about the contemporary distrust of institutions and a and a desire to make those institutions um, relevant and salient again. Um, we have a similar concern, although we come at it from a, a bit of a different different angle. Um, from from our point point of view, a lot of the the institutions that we might call liberal institutions that are the institutions we've inherited and have worked so well for us for so long, were um, designed largely to answer the problems of a different age. So mm -hmm. to answer the problems somewhat like what Mon the, the same kind of problems that Montaigne was looking at. So liberal institutions from our point of view are uh, framework institutions that are, that are intended to allow people with very strong commitments to private life, families, churches, localities to come together and do kind of practical things that will make their common life work more smoothly so that they can go home and worship where they want to worship and have the kind of opportunity, uh, the space for um, the private pursuit of transcendent concerns if, if they so choose, right? So liberal institutions were designed to, 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 to solve or attend to the problem of people with very strong private commitments that often were um, used to pursue transcendent concerns. Um, but when those, uh, when our life no longer looks like that, when we're no longer people with solid commitments to private lives, when our families are breaking down, when religious life becomes less important, liberal institutions aren't going to work in the same way. So a lot of those energies we had once had for our private lives, I think get projected onto the political sphere. We want more out of politics than liberal politics is supposed to offer. So there's a kind of, um, what we, what we hope to reflect on is the kind of disjuncture between the political anthropology that we have, who we are right now, and the way that the, the institutions we've inherited are designed to respond to that. Now, we are uh, conservative in the sense uh, that Yuval is conservative, that we like to try to conserve what we have rather than overturn it all. Mm -hmm. um, and so we'd like to see, we don't know the answer to this, yes, but our disposition is to see um, how we might preserve and adapt the institutions that we've inherited um, to meet uh, what is a kind of changing, evolving, what we call political anthropology or, or state of, of uh, private life for people nowadays. That sounds very appropriate in the age of Trump and the wild generations that we've seen from Obama to Trump to Biden. <laughs> so, but uh, I, and with that, I will just thank the scholars we've been talking to today, Jenna and Ben Story, co-authors of the book, Why We Are Restless on the Modern Quest for Contentment. And thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Ben and Jenna. And goodbye. Thank you, Hope. Thank you.